May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So that's a surprisingly short gospel reading for today, isn't it? And that's actually where Mark's gospel finishes, with the woman afraid not telling anyone. And for a long time people thought, well that's way too short, isn't it? Like, there are no appearances of Jesus in that gospel reading at all, and the woman is still afraid and haven't told anyone. Surely that's not where Mark finished it. So hopefully people have offered us some endings, and they're called the alternative endings. So if you read your Bibles, you'll have the shorter alternative ending and the longer alternative reading. Now, there is virtually no debate within scholars and commentators about who wrote that. It wasn't Mark. Somebody else did, or two other people did, and those reading, those endings are based on Matthew. But they're not marking. The real debate is, is that where Mark wanted to finish, or did somehow his ending got lost? So for a long time, people said, well, clearly, his ending got lost. It was on the end of the scroll and it got ripped off and that's that's a ridiculous place to finish. But over recent years, more and more scholars and commentators are saying, actually, we think that's where Mark intended to finish his gospel, crazy as it sounds. And one of the reasons for that is, well, they haven't found any other endings. Like they keep finding older and older manuscripts and there are no other endings. There are no alternatives. So people have had to think, why would Mark finish there? What is he on about? Well, there are a couple of reasons. The first is, and this applies to all the Gospel readings, we can actually have the picture up, I think. No, did the picture not make it? There it is. See, there is a picture. I knew there was a picture. So, Um, the first reason is that we often see the resurrection as a kind of fixer-upper of the crucifixion so the crucifixion feels like well that shouldn't have happened and the resurrection makes it all right doesn't it? Jesus is raised back to life goes back to God everything's back to the way it should be but actually lots of scholars and lots of commentators would say that is not what the resurrection does at all The resurrection says yes to the crucifixion. That everything that happens before the resurrection is given a big thumbs up by God. This is the way it should be. It's God's affirmation. So the crucifixion is God's way. When Jesus says, well, he affirmed the Torah, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and you should love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus affirms that our neighbours includes everyone who shares our humanity. He told that really nasty story about the Good Samaritan about that. And lots of us really struggle with that. Everyone who shares our humanity. Because all humanity is made in the image of God. And they are our neighbours. And there are lots of people, lots of Christians in the world, who want to kind of close that back down again to the person living next door or the person who lives like looks like me and I should be able to protect myself with an assault rifle because that's my God-given right. So there are lots of Christians who say that. It seems weird to us, or well, some of us. 
And so things like when Jesus said, if you want to be a leader, you have to serve. And then he washed his disciples' feet like a slave to show them what he meant. When he demonstrated that to be a follower of God, you were to imitate God. And God is, as Jesus showed us, generous and compassionate and just and self-giving. All of those things, God says in the resurrection, these are my way. And the last thing that God says, this is my way, is the crucifixion. That amazing moment of self-giving, selfless, humble, powerlessness. We keep wanting to make God almighty and all-powerful, and in the crucifixion God says, ultimately, I am self-giving and powerless. That is the way of life. And the resurrection affirms all of that. So Mark does that, as all the other gospel writers. But Mark does something different. Now the other gospel writers have all these stories about Jesus appearing in Jerusalem and or Galilee. And I think, and lots of others think, that actually Mark didn't want lots of stories told about Jesus in Galilee and Jerusalem. Because in the end that places the resurrection somewhere else at some other time that we can look back to and go, wasn't that great back then in that place? Mark finishes his gospel with, and he will go ahead of you to Galilee. But actually Mark traditionally is said to be writing to the Christians of Rome. And the implication is that Jesus was going ahead of them to Rome. And for us here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Jesus, the risen Jesus, was going ahead of the missionaries to here. So the missionaries didn't bring the risen Jesus. They found the risen Jesus already here. So the invitation in Mark's Gospel then isn't to think about stories of the risen Jesus long ago in another place, but to talk about the stories of the risen Jesus in our place, in our time. And to think about the people who are shaped by their meetings with the risen Jesus and how they spread Jesus' life, God's life, amongst all people. So it was an invitation to tell stories. Well, what might those stories look like? On Friday night, Bonnie and I were privileged to be invited to go to a Jewish Seder or Passover in Hamilton. So we've done a few Christian Passovers, so we had a vague idea what was going to happen. But this time we were doing the real thing with a Jewish community in Hamilton, and it was uh, a really good night. It was a privilege to join with them as they gathered on this most sacred night for Judaism. And again, remember the story of when the Hebrew people were slaves, and God rescued them from their oppression, and God continues to rescue them from slavery and oppression for the next 3,300 years. They can tell you when that first Passover happened. We have debates. They can say it was at this date. And on the table is the Elijah cup, which some people think is the cup that Jesus used during his Last Supper. And the Elijah cup is a cup that is left for Elijah, because Elijah is the prophet who will bring God's redemption. And at the table there is always an empty seat for Elijah. 
and the door is always left open so that Elijah can come in. It's kind of like Father Christmas at Christmas time for us. All of this represents their ongoing trust in God's redemption and protection. And at the end of the night, the head of the family who was hosting the Seder, so they kind of share the privilege of, of hosting the Seder around their, one of the fam, around the families who belong to this community, and he was asked to tell a story from his family from not too long ago about why the Passover and the hopes it holds are still so important. So he is Polish, still speaks with a very broad Polish accent, and as you can imagine, his family suffered terribly during the Holocaust and continued to suffer in Poland afterwards. We don't hear about that, but when those families went home to their hometowns, many of them died there because, well, their once neighbours weren't so keen on returning their houses and their belongings and actually they blamed them. If you Jews hadn't been in Poland, the Germans would never have come. And anyway, you're the Christ killers, so you deserve to die. So this was set at one Passover, and the problem is for them, Passover, their most sacred night, comes at Easter, when the pogroms were at their strongest. That's when Christians got really angry and said, you are the Christ killers and that's when the deaths mostly happened. So, he told the story about his aunt and uncle and their family in this little village in Poland. And it was set at Passover, so one of these terrible times, but it's a story of hope set in the midst of this terrible situation. So, one Passover, some young children, members of the family, were playing in the, in, down in the stream and they were playing Moses, as you do. And so they had their, the, the family wash tub uh, for washing the clothes and they had a little doll in there and they were putting the doll out into the reeds, as you do when you're playing Moses. And then a group of Christian children came and accused them of being of Christ killers and so they ran away and left the tub in the stream and the tub floated away down the stream. Well, that night the family had gathered for Passover and they were just beginning their meal when the door was broken down and an angry mob burst into the, into the house and started breaking it up, carrying all kinds of weapons and, and threatening death. And so the patriarch, the head of the family, stood up and confronted this mob and said, What's, Why are you doing this? Why have you come here this night? And the leader of the mob said, My son and his friends saw your children with a Christian child in a tub and the child was crying and you were torturing it and you were bleeding it so that you could get the blood for the Passover bread. So that's a common reason why Jews are attacked in Europe. And the children were hiding in the background but they went, no, that's not true. And the house was starting to be broken up and people were starting to be injured when there was a knock at the door and there was a fisherman carrying the tub now, he'd been fishing down by the mouth of the river and this tub had floated down and he'd pulled it in and he knew who it belonged to. He recognised it as one of his neighbour's tubs and so he'd come to return it. So he came in with this tub with the doll still in it and the patriarch, the head of the family, was able to say to the leader, look, here's the tub. They were just playing Moses in the reeds. You know the story. And here's the doll. No child, no crying, no bleeding. We don't do that. So the leader on this occasion was apologetic, gave his son a whack around the ears and off they went. 
And then they said to the fisherman, well, we're just starting our Passover meal. Would you like to join us? And he said, look, I'm really sorry. Thank you, but I need to go home. And they said, well, would you like a drink? And he said, that would be really nice. And he picked up the Elijah cup and he just drained it. And he put it down and he said, thank you very much. And then he left. Well, some of the family were deeply upset that he had drunk from the Elijah cup, that sacred cup, which is about the prophet and God's redemption. But the head of the house said, surely tonight he was Elijah. Now, we might want to say from our perspective, surely that night that was the risen Jesus. That's a dramatic story. But there are lots of stories like that that happen all around us. So I invite you to think about those stories around us of the risen Jesus in our midst and the way that they shape other people's lives and the way that they shape our lives. So I'm going to read a little poem and that poem is in the um, in your pew sheet. You don't have to read it. I'm just going to read it. And as I do that, I want you to think about where you encounter the risen Jesus and then there's going to be a little time for you to tell some of those stories to one another and then I have a little action instead of the prayers. So let us think about how we walk in the footsteps of those who first encountered the risen Jesus and how we meet the risen Jesus in our lives. We walk in their footsteps, those women, so afraid of loss and grief, afraid of life, lessened and dulled. They were feared, and yet they followed all the way to the darkest places, Gethsemane, Antonia, Golgotha, the tomb. They followed in despair, farewelling life as hope unravelled. At the end, Jesus was not there. Too much life to be lived, too much hope to be held. They were afraid, those women, as life erupts in love. He has gone ahead. We walk in their footsteps. So how do we walk in the footsteps of those women? How do we meet the risen Jesus in our lives? Tell some of your stories to the people around you for a moment or two.